Ephesians 6, verse 10. A final word, Paul says. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies. Some of you guys are like, didn't he do this verse last week? And didn't he do this verse the week before? Yeah, I'm going to keep doing it. Repetition is key. Against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We keep coming back to this week after week. And some of you guys are like, how long are we going to be talking about this? Are we talking too much about the devil? Are we talking too much about demons? Are we talking too much about the evil one? No, no, no. I will tell you, in our world, we have gone the complete opposite way, and we haven't talked enough about how he moves and how he works and how he tries to shipwreck us. Paul says that to Timothy, that he wants to shipwreck our faith. That's what the enemy does. He wants to do everything he can within his power and ability to try and draw us away from the Father because he knows he's the only one that can heal. And if we draw near to him, there is healing and there is grace and he will draw near to us. And so he has strategies and plans and all most of us do through this life is just kind of go at it and pretend that there's not an evil one, that there's not an enemy, that there is no one that we are up against. We live in ignorance of his plans and his schemes and his methods. How easy is it to see in sports when a team hasn't game planned or a team hasn't studied their opponent and they didn't study the strategies, they didn't go over the game film to study who they were going up against. It shows pretty clearly, especially if you're a Husker fan these last few years. You know that we have to be aware of how the opponent works. That's why we keep going back to this. That's why we keep talking about this. We even have this class that we just started a couple weeks ago on Tuesdays called The Unseen Realm. And it's taken a deeper look at what Scripture says about this unseen world, about the enemy and how he works, how he has worked, how he is working, and how he will work against God's people. We want to be familiar with his strategies. That word in the Greek, it's methodia. It just means craft, deceit. Uh, It's a method. It's where we get the word method today. Well-crafted trickery from the enemy. Matthew 10, 5 through 16. We keep going to this verse a lot too. Eventually, you're gonna have these memorized. We've covered them week after week. You're just gonna have these down. Matthew 10, 5 through 16 This is when Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Demons can get a place, they can get a foothold into anyone's life, including including God's people. We have to be aware of that. We are not immune or invincible or impenetrable to the enemy. We can give him permission 
by the words we speak, by our actions, by the doors we leave open in our lives for the enemy to enter and have a place within us. He says to them, give as freely as you have received. Don't take any money in your belts, no gold or silver or even copper coins. Don't carry a traveler's bag with change of clothes and sandals or even a walking stick. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve to be fed. Whenever you enter a city or village, search for a worthy person and stay in his home until you leave town. When you enter the home, give it your blessing. If it turns out to be a worthy home, let your blessing stand. If it is not, take back the blessing. If any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, shake its dust from the feet as you leave. There's people in this world that will refuse to listen to the message of freedom. There's people in this world that will refuse to acknowledge that they even need freedom. And more often than not, those people, they reside within the church. The church in the West especially, we talk about this often, we've become conceited and prideful in our faith. We refuse what his word offers. I'll tell you the truth, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than such a town on the judgment day. Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. To be as shrewd as snakes. Who's the snake? Who's the serpent? The enemy. I believe Jesus is telling us to learn how to think like the enemy. To learn how to see this world. Because he he acknowledges the enemy does have wisdom. The enemy is thoughtful and thorough in how he approaches his attack plan toward each and every one of us as individuals. They are organized. They are structured. And most of us, we go about just kind of, without even thinking about it, nonchalantly through life. Like, oh, things are great. I got baptized one time when I was younger. I'm great. It's all going to be good. No problem. And we don't even think about the fact or acknowledge the fact that there's an unseen war being waged around us for the souls of each and every individual, including ourselves. He is structured and strategized in his attacks. So be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. So that Satan will not outsmart us, we are familiar with his evil schemes. Once again, he has schemes, he has strategies, he has methods. Thought, purpose is what that word schemes means in the Greek. Design thought, purpose, and design to the way he approaches his attacks toward us. Now go back to 2 Samuel. Each and every one of us is susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. David, described as a man after God's own heart. I I, want to, I don't have this verse up here, but I I want to go back to it really quick before we get to the the passage that we're going to be in in chapter 11. But in chapter 6, 
I started this last week. When David is moving the Ark of the Covenant and something goes wrong, somebody dies along the way. But later on, God finally says, all right, here you go. Do it the right way now. Do it the way I've prescribed in my word. Move the Ark to my city. And so David and, uh, and the Levites, the priests, they're moving the ark. And as they're entering the city, uh, chapter 6 in 2 Samuel, if you want to follow along, verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 16. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. This is David's joy right here. This is his joy being expressed before the Lord about God's presence entering into the city. And he is leaping and dancing and just losing his mind in worship. And some of you today, if you're new to revival, man, I want you to know we want to be a place where you can worship freely. If you want to leap and you want to jump and you want to dance, if you want to fall to your knees, whatever you are feeling the Spirit prompting to draw near to Him, we don't do it to draw attention to ourselves. We do it to submit and surrender to Him, to show Him that we fear Him over the opinions of men in this world. We fear the Lord before we fear any man, woman, person in this world. And so we express that through our worship they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. And all the people returned to their homes. They're celebrating. It's a great day. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said in disgust how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. <clears throat> David had no regard for how people viewed him in that moment. He only was there that day to celebrate who God was, to celebrate in his presence unashamedly. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me. <clears throat> I'm sorry, guys. My voice is already going. This is, whew. He chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned, they will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. <sighs> Something's got me today. Oh. This great moment is followed up not long after by another story. Chapter 11 in, first, in 2 Samuel. <laughs> 2 Samuel 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba. You can go from a moment where you are on fire and you are dancing in his presence to a moment like this. 
This is the moment where the man after God's own heart, David, where he falls. And it starts like this. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, this was war season, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Reba. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her to get her and bring her to him, to the palace. He slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. At a time when kings normally go out to war, David stayed home. First Timothy 1, 18 through 20. Here's what Paul says to Timothy, this young man who's in ministry. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I was driving in this morning, and I, we, have a, we have a team huddle uh, anybody serving on Sunday mornings, when, when we get here, we all huddle up before worship. And so we had this moment today where we had a team huddle. And I, I shared this with them, but I want to share it with the church. I, I was driving in today, and I, I was thinking, like, last night I woke up at some point. I don't know what time it was. But the last three weeks in a row, every time we've, you know, shown up here to set up for church, to set up for worship, there's been some kind of curveball thrown at us. One week, we didn't have the key to get into the building. One week, one of the walls was broken. We didn't know how to, you know, where, which room we were going to do worship in. And it was just kind of week after week. And so I'd woken up at 2 o'clock or something last night, and I was just like, what's it going to be tomorrow? What's it going to be tomorrow? And I was driving in today, and I was just thinking, like, God, I'm just tired. Like, what, what are we going to have to deal with today? Like, what? What curveball? What, what, what's the, you know, what's it going to be today? What are we going to have to struggle through to get to worship today? And I, and I had this moment of thought, like, I, I just wish it was easy. I, I, there's moments that I wish, man, uh, there's moments I wish revival that we had our own building that we didn't have to, you know, wake up at 5 and meet up here at, you know, 6.30 or 7 a.m. to set up chairs and to, you know, set up instruments and mics and all that stuff. There, there's moments I have where I, where I start to think that, and I, I just think, man, I, I wish it was easy. I, I wish it was more comfortable. I, I wish it wasn't so hard. And... 
I was kind of wishing for that today. I was kind of praying for that today. And he just kept bringing me back to this story of David. When did the enemy catch him? The enemy caught him in his complacency. The enemy caught him when he stopped going to war. He was a man of war. That's, what the, that's how the Bible describes him. In fact, he wanted to build the temple, but God told him, no, 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 you are a man of blood. You're a man of warfare. I'm gonna have your son Solomon build my temple. You're a man of warfare. But one spring, when he stopped going to war, that was when the enemy got him. And I just felt like God was pressing that on me today. We can't stop going to war. We have to have that mindset every day, every moment, every decision, even the small ones that we think, this isn't a big deal, this isn't huge, this isn't really that important. Even the small ones, the small decisions, we're making choices of spiritual warfare in even the smallest details of our lives. Some of you guys, you have kids. Your parents, you're raising these kids, and you want to raise them to know who God is. And there's moments as a parent where I will tell you, especially when they're on a three-day, actually, it's about to be a four-day spring break from school, there's moments where you're just kind of like, I'm checked out, I'm gonna sleep on the couch, just turn something on. And you might think like, oh, it's not a big deal, you know, it's just Disney, or oh, it's not a big deal. Even the smallest details of what you're letting your kids be exposed to through movies, through music, through TV shows. It's warfare. Don't stop fighting, especially as parents. Don't stop fighting in every decision you make. Because if you're not influencing your kids for the kingdom, somebody else will. Somebody else will influence your kids. Somebody else will go and they will lead your kids whether it's the movies or the TV or the shows or whatever you use to kind of babysit and nanny your kids. This isn't judgment. I've been there. I, I, I still struggle with it, you know? And so we have to be wise. We have to be shrewd as serpents to think like the enemy and think, Man, how would I get my kids? How, how would I trip my kids up if I were the enemy? And I need to cut that off at the head. How would I get myself? Well, I would try to get myself lazy and ignorant of my presence. I would try to get this person to believe that there is no enemy, there is no fight, there is no battle. Because if there's no battle in their mind, then they're not gonna fight, they're not gonna be able to resist. And if they can't resist me, then the enemy can't flee. If you resist the devil, he will flee. That's scripture. That's the truth right there. If you resist the devil, he will flee. But when you don't believe in the devil, when you don't believe in the enemy, when you don't believe he has strategies and schemes to shipwreck your faith, then you are easy to trip up. You are easy to draw away from the Father. You are exposed to the schemes of the enemy. So yeah, he reminded me today, keep going to war. It doesn't feel like war. It's just setting up chairs. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like war. It's just setting up a coffee bar. 
It doesn't feel like war. It's just greeting some people as they're coming in. It doesn't feel like war. It's just playing guitar. It's just, it's just playing drums. It's just setting up a drum shield. It doesn't feel like war. It feels kind of like it's not that big of a deal. It's not that important. Let me tell you, every piece God's church plays, every piece that he has called and gifted you to play as a part of his body, you are an instrument of warfare. You are, each and every one of us in here, you've been called and gifted as an instrument of warfare in his kingdom. You're not just a musician. You're not just a greeter. You're not just a teacher. You're not just doing babysitting over there for kids ministry. No, no, no. You're an instrument of warfare for the king. You're a part of his body, the church. And we're called to wage good warfare in everything we do. So it might look like it's not a big deal. It might feel like it's not a big deal. But let me tell you something, especially these past three weeks. Like, if you've been here these past three weeks, you know. Something crazy has been going on. The Holy Spirit has been showing up. And the truth of God, his word, has been exposing light in the dark places of people, in places and areas that they thought that they could never get freedom. There are people finding freedom these past few weeks. There are chains being broken off of people's lives. There is warfare being waged in the unseen realm. You have to believe and understand that you're a part of that. You are the church together. We're a part of that. We are waging warfare together. And there are people being set free. And we're being cleaned from the inside out. That's what he's doing right now. I got one last verse I want to go through with you. Worship team, you guys can get ready to come on up here. It's Matthew 23, verses 25 through 26. Here's what Jesus says. What sorrow awaits, he's speaking to the teachers and uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He's speaking to them directly right here. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. So many of us within the church, we were taught that to wage warfare, to wage spiritual warfare, it, it meant to just clean the outside of the cup. Just, just change the outward behavior. Just, just stop sinning, right? You ever been just told like, have you ever just tried to confess to somebody what you're struggling with, what you're dealing with, and all they told you was, well, just stop, as if it was that easy. If it was that easy, I would have. Trust me, I want to. It's eating me up inside, but I keep going back like a dog to its vomit. I keep going back time and time again, and it's because we've been taught to clean the cup from the outside in. What does Jesus say? No, no, no. First, clean the inside of the cup. Let my light, let my word shine and let me cleanse you from the inside out. 
we have to get to the root of what's really going on. These outward behaviors, these sins, these, you know, all these things, when you go through scripture, there's sin after sin listed, and we know it, and we believe it, we know it's wrong, we want to quit, but we don't know how. We have to understand and realize that we can't just keep pulling at the top of this weed. We have to get down to the root, get down to the inside. To be cleansed from the inside out. That word self-indulgence. That one, it, it really means to not prevail. To have no self-control. No dominion. The root word, kratos, it means dominion, strength, power. It's war language. It's war language. These people that kept cleaning their cup on the outside, but on the inside, they were dirty and they were filthy. They claimed to have dominion. They claimed to have it all together. But on the inside, they were filthy and they had zero dominion. They had zero control, but they portrayed themselves as if they had had it all figured out. Everything we do is warfare from the inside out. We are taking back territory. From the inside out, let him clean you. Let him go through every room in the house, every room in the temple. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who lives and moves and breathes within us. There's another word that Jesus uses there. It's clean. Catharos. Clean, pure, unstained. Psalm 19.9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It starts with the fear of the Lord. What's the fear of the Lord? Should I be scared of him? Should I be afraid of him? No, no, no. It's when you're so afraid of not being in his presence, of not being with him, of not drawing near to him. That's the fear of the Lord. That's what David lost in that moment. When he didn't go to war, when he didn't draw near to the Lord. You can, be, you can be a believer your entire life, but if you lose sight of the fear of the Lord, you can shipwreck, shipwreck your faith in a moment. The fear of the Lord is our compass. It's our true north. We fight and we wage warfare to come into his presence, to seek him, to know him, to draw near to him so that he will draw near to us. Don't take your eyes off the fear of the Lord. Keep seeking him in everything you do.